I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We're working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And we're, we've been hearing about the supremacy of Christ and how central he is for all of life. And we'll continue on that this morning. Uh, we'll be looking at Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. You can find that in a pew Bible on page 984. It's also printed in your bulletin on page 8. Have you ever gone to the grocery store when you're hungry? I've realized this is a very bad idea. Uh, And I know conventional wisdom says this, um, but when we do, what happens? Everything that we see sounds good, right? Oh, I need that. And we fill our carts. I I often think about um, Costco. If I'm not thinking about church things, I'm thinking about Costco things. I just find it to be a fascinating store. Um, But part of the brilliance of Costco, I think they really have this dynamic figured out, right? They have a restaurant there full of healthy food, of course. But they they have this restaurant of fine dining. but, But where do you find the restaurant? After you've done your shopping. It's brilliant. So go there hungry. That's why their carts are so big, right? Because as you're going through, and if you think, oh man, that's what I need, a granola bar. You can't just get one granola bar. How about a hundred granola bars? So it's a brilliant model as far as sales go, but it's a dangerous model as far as our wallets go, right? And maybe our overall health. I, I think if we were to appeal to Costco, um, if they were really concerned about our interests, they should flip it, right? Eat first, then go shopping, and they could have much smaller carts, and you'd never need um, all that food. Well, I say all that to say this. While it's dangerous, um, and maybe dangerous is too strong of a word, but maybe dangerous for our wallets to go shopping when we're not full or when we're hungry, there's a different kind of being not full that's actually very dangerous for our lives spiritually. It's far more pervasive. It's constant. It's uh, everywhere we look, not just when we go to the store. And this danger is what Paul is speaking of in our passage today. It's the danger of living this life when we're not aware of the fullness that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul is going to speak in verse 10 about the fact that we have been filled in Christ. And we're going to look at that uh, when we get to that section of the scripture. But the danger that he's warning against is, is very similar to this going to the grocery store dynamic. When we don't realize all that we have in Christ, as we live this life, all the things around us that are telling us we need them in order to be okay, their call, their pull is much stronger. And we lose sight of what we really need to have to live the full Christian life. And so that's why Paul is writing to the Colossians. We really get to the heart of his argument uh, here in chapter 2, because remember, it's, it's one letter that's being read to the people. But he's writing to the Colossians because they are doing well overall as believers and as a church But he wants them to see and experience the fullness that they have in Jesus so that they are not led astray by all the things vying for their attention around them. And so that will encourage our hearts this morning as well as we consider it. So listen with me as I read uh, God's word in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6 
and going through verse 15. This is God's word. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we consider it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we need to better understand and know and believe in the wonder of who our Lord Jesus Christ really is in all that he has done for us and all that we have now in him. We confess that we often think little of these things or just think of a small part of him or what he has done. But we pray that you would strengthen us as we look at your word, that your spirit would illumine our hearts, that we could understand it and behold him through the eyes of faith. We pray that you would help us to hear the good news today of this gospel of what you have done for us through him. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we'll consider this passage um, in three points. The first is your central calling. Second, we'll look at the dangerous distractions. And then third, we'll consider your fullness in Christ as we just kind of walk through this passage. So your central calling, the dangerous distractions, and your fullness in Christ. So first of all, let's consider your central calling as a Christian, which is found there in verses 6 and 7. All along, if we were to review the past few weeks of what we've been looking at, Paul has been holding forth the centrality of Jesus for the Colossians. He truly is the answer to everything that we are facing. But here in verses 6 and 7, he summarizes, really this is kind of the thesis of what he wants them to understand in this letter. It says there in verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We see in these verses this fascinating idea that the call of the Christian life is to continue the very same way that it begins. And I think that can be counterintuitive for us, right? We usually think we begin a certain way and then things change. But in the Christian life, you continue the way that it began. 
He says, as you have received Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and Lord of all, as he mentioned in chapter 1, by faith, so walk in Him. Live a life that is in accord with all of what you have come to believe about Him. And he uses two metaphors to describe this life. Rooted and built up in Him. Rooted is this agricultural picture for us, isn't it? Like a tree whose roots go down deep. And from those deep roots comes fruit of the tree. So also a fruitful Christian life. It doesn't come from trusting in Jesus and then later learning these new tricks and deeper truths that are beyond Jesus. What he wants us to see is in the Christian life, the the source of all of our life and all of our growth as a Christian comes from being rooted in Jesus and his life that works in us by the Spirit. And so it's it's a rooted life, but that other description that he uses, being built up in him, is architectural or construction language, isn't it? Building up something. And what he's getting at there is that in the Christian life, your complete foundation is the Lord Jesus. And then every part of your life is then built on that foundation and connected to that foundation of the Lord Jesus. Well, what does this this mean? I I think this picture is actually really helpful for us. I love that Paul, in, in spite of all the dense language that he uses, when he breaks into these metaphors, there's such um, food for thought for our minds that can give us concreteness to what he's speaking about here. But I think if we think of how we naturally view our lives, I think we tend to view them as maybe a social neighborhood comprised of a bunch of different buildings. And what I mean is this. As we think about our lives, we have a building for our social life. And it's this compartment where we think about our friends, our relationships, maybe social media. We have this other building for our work life. And in it is all our years of training and networking connections and relationships we have at work. Then there's this other building for our family life where we think about singleness and marriage and and parenting. And then every neighborhood has to have some sort of religious building in it, right? So we have this church in this and Um, when you become a Christian, it goes from being this building that's part of a different religion or a building that's really just kind of a self-help section of a a bookstore, and it becomes a building that's devoted to Jesus. But do you realize when he says rooted and built up in him, what he's speaking of is something very different. Our lives are not made to be all these little buildings or compartments. They are made to thrive when Jesus is the one foundation for the entirety of our life. And we take each aspect, each of those things that were different buildings, but we we take each aspect and we consider what does it mean for my social life, my family life, my work life, to be rooted in and connected to and shaped by the fact that I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that as we think about our work, whether that's work at home, whether that's work at school, whether that's going to a job or staying home for a job. 
what does it mean to then work in a way that has Jesus as the foundation of our work? What does it mean for that work to look like Jesus as we do it? What does it mean for me to do that work as someone who's already loved and accepted and qualified by God in the Lord Jesus and not trying to earn some sort of status for him? What does it mean in our work that God wants to do something in the lives of our coworkers as the life of Jesus is now made manifest in us? And so we take all those different parts of our lives and we put them on the foundation of the Lord Jesus. And we consider, what does it mean that he's our foundation when we think about our singleness connected to the life and work of Jesus in regards to who I am in him and who I will one day be? What about with marriage and parenting and our social life, our health and body choices and entertainment that we consider. You see, the central call that Paul highlights here is for Christians, we are to walk in him in our lives, rooted and built up in who he is and what he has done. Every aspect of our lives nourished by Christ and connected to our life in him. So that's the calling that he holds forth. But then there's something that takes us away from this call. And that's what we come to secondly, the dangerous distractions that we come to in verse 8. Last week we saw that Paul was elaborating all of this beautiful teaching about Christ to protect them from something. In verse 4 he says, I say this, I say all these wonderful things about who the Lord Jesus is, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He resumes that warning in our passage here in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And so Paul is warning them about these things, plausible arguments and philosophy. So let's consider those words just for a moment. Plausible arguments means these were ideas about life that were fine-sounding. They sound good. And I think what's important to realize about that is these ideas that he's warning them about, they don't sound crazy. They don't sound scary. They sound like good ideas for Christians. That's interesting, isn't it? They're plausible arguments. And then he uses this word philosophy, which we may think of a subject that we did or didn't do very well in in high school or college. But that's kind of a narrow way of thinking about it. When he uses the term philosophy in his day, it was really used more broadly than we think of it today. It was used really just to speak of a system of thought, a way of thinking about something. And that's really the central issue in this letter. They are in contact with teaching, with arguments, with a way of looking at the world that is dangerous. And from the way Paul writes, they have not yet succumbed to it. They are still doing okay, but it's a threat that he wants to help protect them against. And the tricky part of the book of Colossians, if you go to any... um, study of that book, 
one of the headings you'll find is, what is the Colossian error? What is this philosophy? What is this heresy that is, is being promulgated that Paul's warning them about? And the reality is there are many theories, but at the end of the day, we're not exactly sure of all of the particulars of it. We can't name names and point out exact texts that say, this is what it is. And they sure knew what it was. As Paul, as this is being read in their presence, they say, yep, I heard that on a podcast my friend sent to me. Oh, that sounds a lot like what keeps popping up in my feed. Like they knew what uh, he was talking about. We don't know the exact form of it, but trusting the sufficiency of God's word to help us deal with these things, I think it's actually very intentional that we don't know the exact nature because then what would we do? Oh, well, that's not exactly it, so I don't need to worry about it. When instead, what God wants us to do in our approach to this is to be aware of the characteristics of these dangerous um, descriptions and teachings so that we can be on guard in whatever form they may take in our day. Because there's really nothing new under the sun when it comes to dangerous forms of distractions, is there? And so it seems that there are two main components to these distractions. And I want to walk through them this morning. And these are both found in this verse 8. The first component are the good things that you must do. The good things that you must do. And I get that from this phrase that he uses. He says that this teaching is according to human tradition. This teaching is according to human tradition. If you look down in verse 22, he will further elaborate this by speaking of human precepts and teachings. And he's talking about the same thing. Why is this significant? Well, this phrase is loaded with weight from the rest of our Bibles. We heard in our scripture reading from Mark 7, that these phrases of of human tradition are used to refer to what the Pharisees were doing with interpretations of the law that they were imposing upon other people. And that's very much what Paul, I believe, has in mind here. Later, uh, next time we're in this one, Nate's um, speaking of what, what comes in Colossians 2. He will speak of food and drink and festivals and Sabbaths and prohibitions that sound like Old Testament purity laws. And so it seems that this distracting teaching has elements of a very common problem. Taking particular applications of laws that are in the Bible and insisting that doing these was necessary somehow to experience the full Christian life. And really what this is referring to is legalism, we could say. And Michael Kruger in a helpful article unpacks that the Bible speaks of legalism in different ways. And I think both of them are are part of what might be mixed in there of what's going on in the Colossian church or all around them. Either way, we need to be aware of both of these types of legalism, um, these things according to human tradition. The first we could call salvation legalism. And that's saying that you have to keep certain laws in order to be saved. 
Now, when we hear that, alarm bells probably go off in our minds, right? But this is a problem that's all throughout Scripture. This is the Judaizers' problem. Christians have to keep Torah, otherwise what happens? You're disqualified from salvation. And Paul uses that word disqualified there later in verse 18. And this is still a problem, a danger that faces the church today. Just last Sunday, we heard from our partner in Israel. And as he shared his testimony of what is going on in the church there, this is a real and present threat that there are people who are saying, we must keep Torah in order to be Christians. And the church is dividing over those things. But there are movements beyond Israel that are saying things like this. The Hebrew roots teaching, which has affected people in our country and countries all over the world, is saying that Protestants are wrong. Basically, Christians are wrong. Jesus didn't fulfill those ceremonial aspects of the law. To be a Christian, you have to still keep them. And so this salvation legalism is something to be on guard against. That anytime there's law keeping as a necessary basis for salvation, alarm bells have to be going off in our head, right? But there's also a form of this doing things according to human tradition that poses a dangerous distraction to us as well. And that's making an application of a biblical thing, of a biblical rule, and making it the main thing. And we could call this rules legalism. Usually in this, we're not going as far as saying, if you don't do it, you're not saved. But what happens is, if you don't do it the way we're saying you should do it, we, this is a phrase Paul uses, pass judgment on you implying that somehow by not doing things this way, you're missing out on the full Christian life and experience. And so what happens is this. We take an application of a good thing and we elevate it that it becomes the main thing. There's one way to pursue a spouse. That's dating or that's courting. There's a best way for every Christian to parent. There's a best way to school your children, whether that's homeschooling or public school or Christian school. There's a best way to take care of our body. There's a best way to deal with medical issues. There's a best set of entertainment choices. And if yours aren't lining up with what we have biblically come to say is the best way, then you're missing out on fullness. Then you're missing out on the fullness of the Christian life. We take an application of a good law and we make it the main thing. And so, as you can see, as this is part of what Paul is warning them about, these teachings, this philosophy that's according to human tradition, we can easily become distracted by good things that we then say we must do to have a blessed Christian life. And the danger is when we're not full in Christ, then what happens is we start to think more about the law. We start to think more about doing that thing that certain way than we think about Jesus and who he has made us to be and what he is doing in us even now. Have you ever found that? 
things aren't going well in your life spiritually, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Is it to go back to Jesus and who he is and what he has done? Or is it, ah, I must not be doing one of those things that I've heard Christians are supposed to do for things to go well. I know in my own heart, it's a list of things. And Jesus, I might not hear about him till Sunday, unfortunately, in the way that my heart goes. Paul says, wait a minute, that's having the restaurant at the end of the store. Like that's a problem in how we think about this. And so the first element of this philosophy is the good things that you must do. But there's a second element as well, the powers that you must engage. The powers you must engage. He says that this teaching, again in verse 8, is according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now that's a loaded phrase. Um, This could mean several different things. It could mean the basic truths of a system of thought. Hebrews 5 uses it this way, speaking of the basic truths of our faith. It could speak of the material substances of the universe, earth, water, air, and fire. Or for young people listening, Ninjago characters, right? Earth, fire, water, land. Sorry, adults get it too. Okay, anyhow. Um, Or this phrase could refer to cosmic powers, celestial bodies, stars, planets, and and the related spiritual beings that are understood to be behind them. So you can see this phrase can be used in in a bunch of ways. So what does it mean? Well, the group of words that Paul is using signal to us that he's speaking here in some way of spiritual powers. In verse uh, chapter 1, verse 16, he mentions rulers and authorities, and these are on earth and in heaven, invisible and invisible. And so we see he's already been talking about this, this spiritual world that's going on beyond the physical. He's going to mention rulers and authorities again in verse 15, In chapter 2, verse 18, he brings in this interesting phrase, the worship of angels. And so what all this means is when we hear according to the elemental spirits of the world, we have good reason to believe that he is in some way referring to this teaching that says there are spiritual powers that must be engaged to experience the full Christian life. That's part of what's going on in this teaching. And it it usually comes in two components, and it seems like both are kind of happening here. It can be engaging with good powers, and it can be engaging with bad powers. And let me just explain that. Let's think about the good powers part of it first. Um, It could be a way of thinking that there are good angels that need to be engaged for a fuller worship experience in this life. Now, this may sound strange to us, but it's actually common throughout church history that this has been a problem for Christians, integrating angels into Christian worship. In Galatians and Acts and Hebrews, we learn that angels played a part in the delivering of the law, right? Well, from that has sprung all kinds of thinking about how they should be incorporated into what we do as believers. Later on, in the 400s, 
A teacher named Theodoret said that those who defend the law lead persons to worship angels since they say that the law was given through them. So see this connection, a biblical thing, angels are involved in giving of the law. Oh, we need to make sure they're part of what's going on here. And in fact, Theodoret goes on to say that there was a synod that was held at Laodicea, so a neighboring town of Colossae, and they had to spell out in that synod that angels should not be invoked in the worship of Christians. So see, this engaging positively good spiritual powers is something that can be distracting, excuse me, distracting for believers. And what does this look like? I mean, what it looks like is in some form this. Life isn't going well for you. You just feel like things aren't going well spiritually. Well, you know what you need. You need to be positively engaging these powers, and that's what's going to fill out the rest of your Christian life. So that's the positive encounter with the powers, but it can also take the form of appeasing evil powers that are opposed to believers. And this seems to be an aspect of what's going on here as well. Paul is repeatedly assuring the Colossians about these rulers and authorities and the roles that they're playing in their lives. Later in verse 15, which we'll get to in a moment, he's going to explain how powerful Christ's victory was over these rulers and authorities. And so also throughout the church, there have been teachings that say something to the effect of this. Things aren't going well for you? Not having the full Christian experience? Well, there may be some rulers or authorities or powers that you need to be engaging or these sets of ways to engage them that will fix and fill out your Christian spiritual life. Now, as with all of the distractions that we face in Christianity, there are aspects of truth to these things, aren't there? Spiritual powers do exist. Paul is adamant about that in his argumentation there. Good angels and bad angels known as demons do exist. And often in the West, we tend to act like they don't. And that's a problem, isn't it? That's not living with a right understanding of how these things work. But there's a difference between rightly acknowledging their existence and their roles and being distracted by them. And that's what he's warning about here. Our lives can become more focused on engaging with these powers than they are on Christ and on what Christ has done to these powers and what that means for us. What Paul wants them to see is that none of these powers, good or bad, can keep us from the fullness of, of the experience of the presence of God that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for both of these things, the good that we must do according to the traditions of men or the powers that we must engage according to the elemental spirits of the world, it seems that these are both parts of the dangerous teaching that's facing the Colossians. And what happens is, at first they distract us, right? We start to think about them more and more. And then eventually they deceive us into us thinking that 
they are just as important, if not more important, than Jesus. And what Paul warns of is then they take you captive and they take you away from Jesus and him alone in the gospel. But the remedy to these dangers then is to know the fullness that we have in Christ. And that's what Paul just unpacks beautifully here as a remedy to these dangerous distractions that we face. And so we come to our third point, your fullness in Christ. And we'll see this in verses 9 to 15. Your fullness in Christ. At the end of verse 8, Paul does his last according to phrase. <laughs> these, and he says that these teachings are not according to Christ. And then he goes on in verses 9 through 15 to show us what this means. And look at the beauty of verses 9 and 10. We'll begin with verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You could teach a whole Christology class, really, just on the. I mean, we should just stop now and contemplate this. But there's, as you can tell, there are a lot more words to cover. But um, what an amazing statement! It is hard for us to wrap our minds around verse nine, and beautiful books have been written about this reality. But what I find so helpful is this dwelling language here. In him, the whole fullness of deity, the the divine nature, dwells bodily. Because this dwelling language gives us a concrete way to think about this truth that is really so far beyond us. And that dwelling language is what takes us all the way back to the Old Testament, to what we've seen in Genesis and in Exodus, of God dwelling with his people. And we saw all that was involved, right, in people being able to come near to the dwelling of God in the tabernacle or later in the temple. And how the fullness of God's glory presence was dwelling where? In the Holy of Holies, wasn't it? If you were to say to an Israelite, where does the fullness of God dwell on earth? It's in the Holy of Holies. But do you see what Paul says here? Paul says the fullness of deity has taken up residence, permanently resides, not in a building, not in a temple, but in a body, in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. He is now where the fullness of God's presence is made manifest to us. He is really the true holy of holies for us. And so we can just stop and think how amazing that is. But then you go on to verse 10 and it says, and you have been filled in him. Paul's doing a play on words here with this filling language, right? And when he says you have been made full in him, he is saying that in Christ, you have been brought into the fullest expression of God's presence possible. The most intimate way a person can know God is found in Jesus. We could think of it conceptually as when you come to faith in Christ, you come into the Holy of Holies because you have come into Christ and in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
And that's why the author to the Hebrews can say that even now when we don't fully experience that bodily, it is actually true of us. He says, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You don't have to appeal, appease angels anymore because you even now are among innumerable angels in festal gathering, Hebrews 12 says. And so we don't yet experience it bodily like we will experience the presence of God when we are glorified in the new heavens and the new earth, but we have been brought into the fullness of the presence of God now because we are in Christ. There's a a line that we often sing in the song, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And it says, There is no more for heaven now to give. And I think what that line is, it's getting at this idea. You can't get any more of God or God's presence than you can by being united to Christ in faith. One commentator, Murray Harris, explains what you have been filled in him means. He says, in him and in him alone, God has decisively, and exhaustively revealed himself. And all that we can know or experience of God is therefore found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so knowing the depths of the fullness of our present situation with God is what keeps us from these dangerous distractions. And so Paul continues. (laughs) If that's not good enough, he keeps going to show us how thorough this fullness really is. And he goes on with these words, you were circumcised, buried, raised, made alive in and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in, in the rest of this point, I just want us to see two things about what it means that we've been filled in him that Paul just unpacks here. The first is through Christ, you now belong in God's presence. You belong in the presence of God. He says in verse 11, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This is the only part, the place in the Bible where Paul talks about New Testament circumcision in this way. And so it's significant. But in the Old Testament, circumcision was what? It was a way of signifying belonging. The cutting off of a part of flesh marked you out as belonging to God's covenant people. And it was always incomplete. Not only because it only applied to males, But it was always incomplete because from the very beginning, the Bible spoke of the necessity of being circumcised in heart to truly be one of God's people. It was reiterated all throughout the Old Testament. Physical circumcision is not enough to truly make you one of God's people. But Paul speaks of the fulfillment of what that was always pointing to here. Christ's circumcision. It's one that is made or done without human hands, but it's done by God himself. It's one that doesn't merely remove a piece of flesh, 
but it removes the entirety of our sinful nature. He says it puts off, it strips off the body of the flesh. Through faith in Christ, brothers and sisters, you undergo true spiritual circumcision. And what does that mean? You are marked out as belonging to God's very people. And your fundamental identity has changed, Paul says. You were once marked out by not belonging, right? And he he goes on there in verse 13. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were uncircumcised in your flesh because of your sin nature and the power that it had over you. But as you've been united to Christ by faith, which is signified in your baptism, all of that has changed. You were buried with Christ and that old person and the power that that sin nature had over you, it died. And you were raised through faith in him so that you're no longer under Adam and not belonging, but you are now raised with Christ and you were made alive. And made alive means that by the Spirit, even now, you are participating in heavenly life inwardly, and one day we will participate in spiritual life completely with animated, resurrected, glorified bodies. But you are a part of heavenly life now. And so do you see what he's saying? Through Christ, you belong in God's presence. Your fundamental identity was once part of the age that was passing away, but your identity now is one who is made for heaven, made for God to dwell with him forever. You belong with God because you are in Christ. And then he says, secondly, that through Christ, nothing can stand against you. Nothing can stand against against you. Everything that stood against us, that had power over us, has been dealt with by Christ. That problem that has kept us from God ever since the garden, at the end, that problem of sin, at the end of verse 13, it says that through Christ, God forgave all our trespasses. It is done They are forgiven, past, present, and future. And we may know that in a debt sort of way, but what about in a condemnation and shame sort of way? And he goes on to speak of the beauty of this. The condemnation of our sins has been taken away. In verse 14, he speaks of this record of debt that stood against us. It's such a a beautiful imagery of, of the situation we find ourselves in apart from Christ. It's, it's the image of an IOU note. I owe you something and it stands against us, condemning us. It makes a case against us with what? It's legal demands or the ways that we have broken God's laws. One theologian says it's an image of an IOU note that says this, I owe God obedience to his will. Signed, mankind. And you can put your name there and every person there who has ever lived. It's this IOU that stands against us, condemning us because of what we have done 
and what we owe God. And what did God do? He canceled it, it says. He erased it. That word is the same word for he wiped away like he will one day wipe away every tear. And then Paul gives this profound picture when he says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That IOU that condemned us because of the ways that we have failed in word and deed and thought to please God with our lives, it was placed upon the Lord Jesus. And he bore it. And he was nailed to a cross to completely pay for it so that through his sacrificial death, all that record that stood against us was done away with. It was set aside. It was removed from the case file is the idea that's conveyed there. Believer, through faith in Christ, nothing about your sin, what you do or don't do, can stand against you again. Forever, it's been taken away through the work of Christ. But what about those powers that they were concerned about, that they thought they had to engage? Well, verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Such a glorious picture. The image is of the Lord Jesus Christ as the victor. And these powers, whatever they may be, are defeated. They are disarmed. They are stripped of whatever power they have had against us. And in the cross, they have been publicly put to shame, it says. They're at the end of a victory parade, the victory parade of the Lord Jesus and these rulers and authorities and all the power over us that they ever had. Where do they find themselves? They are his captives, the spoils of his war, who are humiliated in defeat. And it's the greatest cosmic irony that in the cross, what seemed like the total defeat of God's way and God's plan and victory for the powers that were against him and against us was actually the exact opposite. As through that cross, everything that they could ever hold over us was then taken away from them. Because you see, we are now no longer defined by Adam who was defeated by the serpent, but instead we are now defined by being in Christ who has defeated the serpent. And he is now head and authority over all rulers and authorities and powers that could ever hold sway over us. So do you see? Paul wants them to see the fullness of, that they have in Christ. That all these other things that are being held out to them that would actually get them some sort of closer walk with God. He says they're distractions and they're actually dangerous because eventually you can start to look to them even more than Jesus. What is it that distracts you from the fullness that you have in Christ? It may be something that's bound up here. 
in the teaching to the Colossians. What is it that makes you think, if only I were better at this part of my life, then I'd really be fit for God's presence? Then I'd really somehow be experiencing his blessing? Is it the good you must do? Is it some sort of rule or way of living that when you don't do it, you feel judgment, either that you impose upon yourself or others impose upon you? Is it powers that you must engage, that you find yourself spending more of your life focused on them than you do over the one who is the head of them all, whether good or evil? You know, it's probably wise to eat before going to the grocery store. Because being full helps us better assess what we really need and what we really need to put in the cart, right? But while that might be wise, and you can do it or not do it, it is certainly wise to heed the gospel's call to live each moment of our day, to start our day, to front load everything that we do focused on the fullness of God's loving presence that is now completely ours in the Lord Jesus Christ as we then engage in all these things that are telling us if only we had something else, life would be better. If only we had something else, we would have God's favor. If only we had something else, we would truly be full. Because all the fullness we need of dwelling in that holy of holies presence has come to us simply by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. And look at all the beauty that that brings. So let's pray that our Lord Jesus would help us by his spirit to know that fullness. Our Father in heaven, we stand in awe of your word and how perfectly it sees all of reality and then how it shows us that at the center of all that, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we have now received fullness in him. Will you help us to understand that more? through your word and by your spirit? Will you help us to run to that and cling to that above all the other voices that lead us astray? And will you help us to find joy in the fullness that we have and to also long for the fullness that will come when our Lord Jesus returns? Help us to walk in this, we pray, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.